Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhan. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, no, Monday, July 4th. Right. Monday, July 4th, 2022. And uh, we're just uh, closing out the holiday weekend. Yes, happy 4th of July. We have had company. Mm-hmm. And uh, baby Hazi's been learning to walk That's this right. weekend. Right. So that was our fireworks. A lot of family this weekend. It's been a great weekend. It's been beautiful weather out here, so no complaints there. And uh, constant threat of severe storms that never appeared. That was only one day. They did not show up. They didn't show up, which is fine with me. Fine with me. And there's a big rumor today. The big rumor. The big excitement. July fourth. Yeah, I got a text text. in the middle of the day from uh, our loyal correspondent, Dixon Cuff. Saying uh, Biden's in town. Biden yeah. is at the Black Bass Inn. Right. Uh, somebody is just uh, run into him there. Right. Lumberville, which would it just be? I don't know, five miles from us, eight miles from us, and uh, and this is like really you're kidding. This is like news from the, the blue. And how could this be? That you know, this is a, a small. Joe town. did not tell us he was coming. It's a small restaurant. And so we're saying, should we drive up there and see? It would be such a big fuss. No, you know? only you were saying that. Well, I, it seemed crazy to me to uh, not check it out. Um, not necessarily to see Biden, but just to see if there's really a swirl of cars and, uh, you know, a Social Security. Uh, not Social Security. So, what, what do they call it? It's the end of a tough weekend. The security detail. The security detail. Exactly right. Yes. You know. Um but uh, then cooler heads prevailed. And I said to myself, this doesn't make any sense. So I looked up on, on the World Wide Web what Biden's schedule was today. And his schedule was... Did not include Lumberville. Right. And it's like he's in Camp David. He's supposed to give some kind of press conference or something in, uh, in the Washington area at some point at, at one in the afternoon. Although there was a little, a little not clear about that. But for sure, he had a firm date at five o'clock in Washington, D.C., uh, to, uh, you know, have a veterans gathering with respect to July 4th. And it, so how could he be here in Lumberville at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock and, and be in Washington? And it, n- number one, it wasn't on the schedule. And number two, okay, it seemed logistically whatever, impossible. So, it was a fun story. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Well, I'm we'll sure. Get, we have to investigate. We, we will get more details right. because we. it was actually... Theoretically, he was spotted by Yoga Bob. All right. Well, so then, we, uh, we, will reach Yoga out. Bob, we will reach out. We will reach out to Yoga Bob. This is the problem with hearsay, Tamsin. Hearsay <laughs> is the problem. That's all I'm going to say about the hearings. Hearsay Listen, is an issue. For all we know, he, the detail went directly by our house. Yes. You, and we you, didn't even idea, notice. You criticized me we for didn't wanting even to go notice. up there. Your idea was to go down the end of the driveway and, and watch the security de- well, detail drive south. It is one thing yeah. to set up a couple of lawn chairs oh, and a six-pack yeah. at the side of the road yeah. and see if anybody interesting goes by. That's <laughs> not bad. You wanted to drive to the restaurant. All right. Yeah, I, was, I lost my head there. Yeah. So, But speaking of uh, July 4th, there were a couple of articles that are you know highly related. They did a thing about fireworks, as, as one does on uh, the 4th of July, the Times wrote about the, the big fireworks uh, companies that apparently have been, not had many dates uh, over the last couple of years because of the pandemic and the like. And uh, now they're back in business. They're doing booming business. Uh, Grucci family, of course, very famous in Long Island. And the number one issue that comes up, they say, well, I understand that you have a lot of places that you have to do your fireworks, but 
do you have all your supplies because of all the supply, you know, all the uh, issues in terms of getting supplies, particularly from foreign countries. The supply chain issues. Exactly right. right. Logistical issues. Yeah, I'm coming up with that gunpowder. Yes, whatever it is. Well, it turns out uh, Grucci had all the leftover stuff from the last two years, which they had. uh, They still have, and it's still good. Stockpiled. Well, that's that's right. So they asked uh, Phil Grucci, who runs the company now. He says, "You know the old saying, keep your powder dry. That works as long as you keep the powder dry. uh, They pretty much last indefinitely." So the saying comes from reality. So what they do is they have uh, buried uh, their powder and their explosives at various locations. They're undisclosed locations. Someone figured out that it's not a good idea to make public where all these explosives are buried. So they're a secret. But when the time comes to do But it's not in a ditch. It's like in an underground warehouse in somebody's basement. They call it a bunker. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's in bunkers. They recover it. Although I will say this. I mean, they're very professional now. They talk about the idea that in the old days, you know, and this is a family that goes back several generations. Felix Grucci, you know, the patriarch, used to light the uh, explosive, the fireworks, you know, with his cigar. That's the way they did it. <laughs> now it's, it's all done. It's all all the software, all the electronics. He must know. have been a busy man. Yeah, you just mouse click and go. Uh but, you know, it's not exactly all professionals. They say what happens is that when they do a display, about 50 of the pyrotechnicians are full-time Grucci employees, but there are other people who are involved to orchestrate the shows, and they are part-time workers with day jobs. Again, this is a quote from Phil Grucci. For someone who may be an accountant or a mechanic or something like that, they become a performer for that 20 minutes. And when the show is over and that audience roars... There's nothing like it. So there you go. It's a combination of professionalism and amateurs, which might make it a little They're not tense. amateurs. They're getting paid to do it. They're trained. That's not the definition they're of technicians. professional. Honey. You don't become a professional just because they're no, paid. No, amateur just means uh, someone who loves what they're doing. Is that right? If you, if you want to be perfectly frank. Uh, amateur. Well, all right. Thank you. But here's what I mean. People, Amor. What I really mean is people know nothing about this. and they're, they're, they're They don't need to know, but they just need to know service. the safety instructions. Let's hope so. And how to do it. Okay. There also was an article. And yeah, I guess you're right. There's an article in the Times, the same page, about an issue about the 1812 Overture. We've gone in the past to Tinicum where they have uh, uh, fireworks display. A big concert. And they had this preceded by a concert yeah. and the climax of the concert. And this one, you know, the fireworks are going to come on after sitting there in the uh, in this buggy atmosphere for three hours waiting for them to come on. Uh, suddenly they go into the 1812 Overture and you say, okay, we're home now. We right. can do it. Right. And when they start, you know, I'm not going to sing it. Boom. Yeah. Uh, you're you're in business because that's why they're releasing them. Well, it turns out that uh, some people doing this don't feel comfortable playing the 1812 Overture anymore because it's Russian. We will have to see. Yeah. We will have to ask our sources. And yes. we have we Tinicum people. sources. We have Tinicum sources. The so Daves. We will ask the Daves if, uh, you know, the Riverside Symphonia played the 1812 Overture. You know, first of all, I have to confess to you. I never thought twice about the fact that the 1812 Overture is associated with a Russian military initiative, although I can see it's logical because it's written by Tchaikovsky. But then I had to read carefully to see what the initiative was, and maybe you were onto this, because I was not. Uh, are you onto this? No. 
Okay. There was a, it's the war in 1812 in which Napoleon was invading Russia, Moscow, I believe. And the Russians repelled Napoleon. Uh, and that's what the music celebrates, the effort to repel Napoleon. So uh, some people say, you know something, I know it's Russian. I know that's not too cool. But on the other hand, they're repelling invaders. That theme yeah. of a repelling invaders sort of, you know, is is very much uh, synchronistic with the notion of Ukraine resistance. Uh, so yeah. we're, we're not uncomfortable. So um, yeah. let someone else sort this out. We will report back as to what's going on and what went on in Tinicum. So we have been doing a fair amount of swimming we during this weekend because it's been hot. Yeah. And uh, we even, uh, you know, we're coaching Hazi, who is now, you know, 13 months old. And he's ready. So the he's man ready. should be swimming. He should be um, swimming. And he kind of is. In the water. And uh, he loves the water. We've, we've had a good time. Um, and one of the things we love to do is uh, swim in uh, what's called open water. Sadie will be doing that at Block Island. She'll be in the mile swim. Representing the family. It's uh, the only one with later, the cuts Later this it. summer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've been. I was out in Lake Lanier swimming up a storm yeah. just recently. And uh, the New York Times this week was an article about a group that uh, swims from Brighton Beach to Coney Island. Uh, and they call it a food crawl as opposed to Australian crawl oh, or pub crawl yeah. or whatever. The idea being that, you know, it's about, uh, they swim about a mile right. uh, from Brighton Beach in the ocean, or whatever you call it at that point, is it the ocean or the is it the yeah. Um, yeah down to Coney Island? They pick a spot. Uh, one, uh, I guess, most recently, it was uh, Paul's daughter, a place for lobster rolls. Okay. Okay, so you get in, swim a mile. You have a lobster You get to roll. eat the lobster roll. And then you got to swim a mile back so it's a to your starting swim, point. Which is on, yeah. How can they do it? That's a lot of swimming. That's a lot. Well, here's one thing that helps. Yeah. They time it specifically yeah. with the tides yeah. so that uh, somehow when, you, when you're on your way back, you're basically floating back, that uh, the water does all the um, work. Okay. Uh, but it does seem like so. a long swim. Yeah. And they take a big rest during it. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, you know, I mean, that's challenging. You also have to carry your money with you. And they have a cute picture of somebody putting on, you know, a swim cap and then another swim cap over it and in between some cash mm-hmm. or credit cards or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're planning other swims. One of them seems incredibly ambitious. Yeah. And that is um, from Coney Island Pier to Valentino Pier in Red Hook, Brooklyn, to eat pizza and barbecue and get a slice of pie from Steve's Authentic Key Lime Pie. Right. So how long is that swim? That is 10 miles each way. That doesn't make it. No one's doing That's that. That's a long swim. It's not happening. Yeah. You know, okay. I don't know if they would really be planning to swim back another no. 10 miles. The answer is no. So, I mean, but apparently that's still in the planning stages. Yeah, it'll be in the planning stages for and, a long time. I got to say that everybody mentioned in this article is like 50, 60, yeah. uh, etc. Let me ask a question. Do any yeah. of these people have cars? Because that's another way that you can get yourself a pizza and barbecue. Well, you could walk there too. Okay, yeah. 
at uh, about the same rate. Many people drive when they have 10 miles to go. That's something they that, that someone might propose. Well, it's just a weird thing because they have a picture of people getting ready to swim and they all have, um, shall we say, generous body types. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you would think that uh, that's a tremendous workout, swimming a mile, right. you know, to get a lot of Well, the tides roll. have something to do with it, but it is it does sound pretty challenging, honestly. I don't understand it at all. Huh? I'm mystified. Okay. Okay. Um, so here's a fun article. I know you don't think it's fun, but uh, you didn't quite notice it. But uh, the New York Times was making a fuss about, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of... Uh, Discussion of when exactly Mount Vesuvius erupted. You know, that's the volcano that covered Pompeii, Pompeii and right, Herculaneum. Yeah. And, you know, it gives us so much information about the past because it kind of stopped time by right. preserving buildings, people, mm-hmm. you know, objects, etc. And the traditional date has always been uh, August 24th in the year A.D. 79. August 24th, 79. And that comes to us from Pliny the Younger, who, and uh, he seems like a reliable source. Pliny seemed to know a lot of stuff. His uncle Pliny the Elder actually died as a result of Vesuvius. He was trying to um, rescue some people. He was actually in the water, but these huge waves of the pyro whatever um, killed everybody. Yeah. Even in the water. So um, that was an issue. Anyway, uh, there's, you know, there's been some intimations that it couldn't have been in August because there seemed to be barrels of wine, all right, already set up. And of course, barrels of wine would mean the grapes were harvested. That happens usually in the fall, not Mm-hmm. in the summer okay mm-hmm. and you know and other little details you know various um walnuts chestnuts pomegranates things that are you know come to fruition or are harvested in the fall not in the summer mm-hmm. okay of august so for a long time but most recently the fun tantalizing uh clue that says uh gives us an idea of what the date may be was the discovery of a, a charcoal inscription by possibly some worker, a worker who was, you know, probably working on, you know, fixing up, restoring a villa mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in Pompeii. And uh, he remarks that um, it's, this is what the inscription says in charcoal on the wall. The 16th day before the calends of November he indulged in food in an immoderate way. The date would be October 17th. So in other words, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody not feeling too well on the job, yeah. scribbles on the wall, right. you know, um, you know, on this date, I was kind of having a tummy ache. Yeah. And that may be the clue that gives us well, I'm glad we're, the, uh, a more precise date. Okay. Glad we're zeroing in on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Apparently, uh, it's not news, really, to those in the in the Vesuvius know. Yes, in the biz. Yes, it is. But, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. October 17th. October 16th, we know, yeah. is, it's a is an day. important date it's an important in day. history. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, because... Somebody got married then. Yeah. 
and it feels like it was in uh, you know that year BC, but uh, or AD. I forget the really, no, really, just a joke. Oh, could you move on, please? I have more. Yeah. Wow. Hey, the mural thing. You, did, you just have to finish that point. We we talked about this mural that uh, there were objections to because of uh, an image of George Washington. Well, school board in San Francisco. Yeah. Decided to, you know, there was a decision in 2019 to paint over a um, the Life of Washington mm-hmm. mural by Victor Arnatoff. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, which set off all kinds of, you know, mm-hmm. art history alarms. Mm-hmm. This was not the first time that was, I don't know if you what you remember from the story, but uh, during the 60s and 70s, there were demonstrations and requests uh, by groups like the Black Panthers mm-hmm. to destroy this mural because it depicted black slaves and it depicted um, also... Uh, dead uh, American Indians, right? Um, you, Native I know, Americans, I, I should say. You, you, you are not, fa- you know, you don't have a favorable view of destroying artwork. I know that. No, no, no matter what. Yeah. And at that time, the way they resolved that, they said, you know, um, they hired an African American Dewey Crumpler to paint a responding right. mural. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and he was very much against. Destroying, destroying the murals, murals. Right. and he and he spoke out at this last thing. Well, anyway, um, school board says we're going to paint it over, mm-hmm. right? Um, but they people got up head. in arms and yeah. they said, "Okay, we're going to cover it," yeah. all right. And then it was stopped by a judge because it was determined the al- alumni um, kind of uh, spearheaded a lawsuit um, saying they didn't proceed. Uh, fully within the law, they had to get an environmental impact right. uh, statement, which they didn't, and so on. So by a judge said, no, you can't uh, do anything about this. And so what has happened is that school board, part members of that school board were recalled. Oh. There's a new school makeup board. of they, the school board, the and now they uh, have changed the, the result. result. So we'll see how long... Yeah. That last. Yes, but, no, uh, there was a big issue about San Francisco School Board. It's, uh, it's now less liberal than it used to be. Uh, less, you know, left-oriented. That's interesting. I didn't realize that was one of the implications of that. But there you go. I'm not surprised. So there was an article that this, to me, is, uh, is a very telling article and meaningful beyond the limited subject matter. It's called NASA Protest Halls Auction of Bugs That Ate Moon Dust. There was an auction of some cockroaches who had... Uh, eaten moon dust, as the headline says. We say, well, how is that uh, possible? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, here's why. Uh, In 1969, when the manned spacecraft went to the moon, they brought back uh, moon dirt, moon dust. 47 pounds of lunar material uh, came back in the space capsule. And the material was uh, fed to 10, quote, lower animals, including fish and insects. All right. and they wanted to see whether the lunar dust had a toxic effect on animals on Earth. Okay. So uh, somehow a few of the German cockroaches ended up in the laboratory of a woman named Marion Brooks, who was an entomologist at the University of Minnesota. She found no evidence that the moon dust was toxic to the cockroaches. When the experiment ended, as one does, the professor brought the cockroaches home. Okay. As opposed to leaving them with NASA. 
So she's got the cockroaches, or she had the cockroaches with moon dust in their stomachs and her home. Because she thought... Are they still alive? No, no. They, I mean, they died a long time ago. She of kept, natural causes? Uh, I, I don't know. They don't get into okay. that. My okay. guess is not. But in any event, uh, <laughs> she kept them until she died in 2007, left them to her daughter, and her daughter uh, sold them. Sold them because, you know, they're worth something. They have moon dust in them. Who is moon, yeah. moon material? Yeah. Someone buys them, and then they're sold again, uh, and they end up at this auction. Uh... Uh, at our, our auction house and the bidding gets up to $40,000 apparently it was taking place over a few days and NASA learned about it and stopped the auction and said no no this material belongs to the U.S. government uh. and people say well how could it belong to the U.S. government this woman brought it home blah 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 well here's the thing that really gets you okay uh, NASA with a the annual budget of $24 billion apparently um has a little problem keeping track of everything. <laughs> the agency says, according to the article, the agency has lost a, quote, significant amount of its property because of its lack of adequate procedures. This is according to an Inspector General audit. Uh, they've made some improvements, but they still tend to lose track of things. They gave an example of a, a bag of stuff that was brought back by Neil Armstrong and just kind of lost track of it. Uh, so they lost track of this. In other words, it's a government agency that's kind of fumbling around and things like moon dust end up in private parties' hands. So people were supposed to return it to NASA. Yeah, it's NASA stuff. NASA spent a zillion dollars to get this stuff. Presumably they wanted it. It's not for people to take home and say to their uh, niece and nephews, yeah, look at this. This is really from the moon. And that's what happened. So uh, NASA wakes up, stops the auction. And it's kind of a nightmare to think that NASA is so loosely run that they say there's a, there's a model of a, a lunar module that went out to auction a few years ago. NASA just lost, lost track of it. They're, they're not too, together. Yeah. But so in any event, so they asked this woman who, who sold it, the daughter of Marion Brooks, who sold it initially in, in around 2010, whether she had thought she had regrets about selling the moon dust, for, presumably for a lot less uh, than $40,000. Uh, the cockroaches with the moon dust. And she said uh, she thought it was a fair deal. Besides, she said they were just cockroaches. So uh, she took it in stride. But, uh, you know, that's a scandal. I mean, uh, it's unbelievable that uh, the moon dust, it just ends up, you know, working its way through. Yeah, but Daniel, look at it this way. By now, we were supposed to be like, Constantly going to the moon. Yeah. You know, people living on the moon, working on the moon. That's what it, it is. It would not be a big deal. You know, the moon dust was going to be like a normal thing that everybody, you know, was washing well, out here, of their here, clothes. Here, here's the thing. You might be right. But here, here's what really is relevant is the next article I know you have is about Antiques Roadshow. And that is about people auctioning off all kinds of weird stuff. And no, see no, no, really no, worth. no, 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 they're not auctioning off anything. Yeah. Okay. People take All right, things you're right, you're right. for an appraisal yeah. by the experts on Antiques Roadshow. The PBS okay. show, All Antiques right. Roadshow. So the show is an entertainment show. Yes, you're and right. And I will say it's completely entertaining. Yes, it is. You laugh, you cry, yes, you I know, like et cetera. I, like yeah, I mean, people come and they have... You know, these marvelous stories about, about some object <laughs> which can't possibly be true if you know, well, if you know even a few facts of history yeah. or whatever. I think it can be and true. And so, and, you know, and, and these, these, appraisers these appraisers have to deftly break their hearts 
Oh, you well, know, you see, by saying, sometimes they tell them it's worth a fortune. Sometimes it's right. the other so, way. Yeah, so there's, sometimes there's, and the family pres- mythology is destroyed, but uh, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, people bring things that they seem to completely unaware or valuable. Well, that's another thing. Oftentimes, the appraisers are very knowledgeable, and it's not as if the people come in with big stories. They say, I got this thing, or my grandfather got it, and... I don't know. And then the appraisers say, well, we can tell who made it. We can tell who sold it. We can tell how old it is. We can tell you how rare it is. Another one of these was sold. You know, they add a lot to it. It's quite interesting. Well, in any event, there was an article in the Times about the Antiques Roadshow, the magic of Antiques Roadshow. And we don't want to dwell on this because we don't want to be negative, but it kind of missed the mark entirely. Well, it was odd that it was even, it's an opinion article in the Sunday Review section, which is entirely political. Uh, and I, maybe because they want it to be political, they take a negative slant on what's going on, and they 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 relate it. This person who wrote it related it to the notion of questioning experts or something like that. But that's not what the Antiques Roadshow is really. Well, about. yeah, I mean it's really weird. They um, he goes in with his parents. Well, the, I don't know if it's a woman or a man. It's Jay Caspian. Yeah, uh, it's a guy. Okay, and uh, let me get the last name. Jay Gatsby and Kang, I guess. All right. Yeah, I've read articles by this person. And they have a, a, a scroll. Yeah. Um, was it Chinese? Or I've lost the thread of it. Yeah, but it's not important. Uh, any, anyway, they ha- and they... They're told it's not They know it's viable. pretty old. Yeah. They've done some research. They yeah. know it's pretty old. But they go into it. Um, the uh, writer of the article has uh, kind of uh, choreographed a whole little dance they should do right. in terms of, you know, not saying what, you know, how much they know. Right. And he he actually does say, um, you know, he, he basically tells them to lie about right. this. And his assumption is everybody's lying about their objects. Yeah, I don't think that's true. You know, um, and so uh, in the end, they don't get on TV. They're really kind of pissed. And it's not that valuable. But, you know, the funny thing is, I don't think people are lying. Look, I think it comes down to two kinds of situations. You know, I, again, I don't think it's worth dwelling on the article because I think the writer's completely off. But just generalizing, and of course, there's a greater variety in this. There's two kinds of situations that are popular. One is, it's something that's been in the family for a while. There's a family story behind it, and a grandfather had it. Or, or a grandfather or a grandmother was famous or something like that. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Wally Pip sweater, for example. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, ball player for the Yankees. And um, there's a story behind it, and they're asking for the value of it now. And, and the value of it, in a sense, kind of, if it's valuable, it makes them feel that much happier about the memory, about uh, it's a stronger connection. It's, it, 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 it puts their their ancestor in sort of a, a higher pedestal, if you will. So it's, it's all good. It honors it yeah. honors their forefathers. Right. Uh, and I don't think they're looking to sell so much as it's, it, it, it imparts value in a different way. And the other is the one that, you know, they were walking around and went to an estate sale. They spent $50 for something. and No, they was, spent like $2. Okay, $2 or $3. And they bring it in and uh, who knows? Maybe it's a gusher. Maybe it's an oil well in their backyard. Maybe yeah. it's worth quite a bit of money. And... That, uh, they don't have a lot of uh, ego at stake there, so mostly they're just hoping for the best money-wise. And maybe it, it makes them feel that they're clever because they, they had the eye to find right. this painting that no one else found. But it's, those are the cases in which they might even make some money because they don't have an emotional attachment to it. 
Those, those are the, the two kinds of things, I think. Uh, no, no, there are a zillion stories. There's also the story of somebody who has actually invested in something they think is very fine, yeah. and they've been told is very fine and very original, and then it turns out not to but be. But that doesn't happen okay. very often, does it? You know, or it's just there were a lot of broken hearts because... Uh, Furniture in general went down in right, value. Right. Okay. Yes, things yes. that were worth zillions right. a couple Pottery of years ago um, right, are, are worth almost nothing now. I mean, for me, the biggest thing was, I mean, I, I think it's great entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it also had an effect on people like my parents who began to believe that everything that they had in their house was a gold mine. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe so they you must... feel like, yeah. you know, all these random objects that's funny. That's funny. are worth zillions. I guess that's possible. And in some situations, they are. Yeah. But, you know, in some situations, you got to find the right buyer. Right. And in many situations, you don't have exactly what was yeah. on Antiques Roadshow with but the authentic. fairness, your parents were antique dealers, so they were particularly Oh, they have many beautiful things. But, but yeah. you know, yeah. in the end, yeah. um, even the people who find out they have something that's worth half a million dollars... <laughs> Half the time, it's so important to their family history. Right. They're not going. They wouldn't sell it right. in a million years. Yeah, those are the closer so. cases. I mean, very often, it's worth much more than people think, but it's not enough to change your life. You know, it's worth 5000 it's worth 8000 it's worth 20000 It's still not enough to put you on a different path, so it's worth keeping. You know? but, you, but you do see the guys who, you know, just seem like goofballs, and they paid... Fifty bucks for something now it's worth a thousand and they, they feel great and they look like they, they, they used a thousand dollars you yes, know right. um, and you see the people brought to tears so I guess what we're saying in the end is it just um, it's, fun. it's not all about lying yeah, and, and getting mean, and getting why on lying TV is part of it at all I mean who cares what it's, it's the experts analysis that matters that this guy's saying uh, you know his family is going to say this about it or say that about it uh, no one's listening to that. Yeah. Well, at the, at, at, at the end, the the writer and his parents seemed to feel that uh, the uh, appraisers didn't really know what they were looking at, and they were greatly disappointed. Good. Uh, yeah. You know, who knows? Maybe that was the case. Unlikely. Uh, but I will say, on the uh, feedback booth, yeah, you always have the people who said, "I I brought this. I thought it was, you know." A precious thing. Right. They told me it's not worth anything, but I had a great time. They always say that. But you know something? <laughs> I think if you don't say that, they don't put you on the feedback booth, honey. So it's a little skewed. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, you had some. Uh, you do a museum news. There is museum update. Now that we're talking about things. Yeah, a couple museum updates. Yeah. Um, one is you know we talked uh, a little a few weeks ago about uh, some uh, a treasure trove of Basquiat's. That were in um, Thad oh, Mumford's uh, storage locker or something, right. and uh, were sold very cheaply uh, to someone, and now you know they will be worth zillions. Right. Okay, and they're on uh, exhibition in, in, Orlando, in a museum in Orlando. Right. Okay, and but it wasn't clear whether they're authentic. Right. Okay, there were there was in, in fact one of them was done on the back of a FedEx envelope mm-hmm. that uh, seemed to date from five to ten years after the death of Basquiat. Oh, that's a bad, okay. bad yeah. fact. So number yeah. one, the FBI ends up raiding the museum. Oh God! And taking those works. Yeah. Okay, because the FBI, um, I guess they're. They're being charged with conspiracy and wire fraud, oh, which I never understand. Oh. 
Um, what, but, for us, what you get charged with is they can't think of anything else, honestly. Okay, yeah. so, the, so this is it. And uh, the FBI says they have um, like a signed affidavit from Mumford yeah. uh, before he died yeah. saying he never bought anything from Basquiat. Oh, God. Okay, which was not mentioned in that Times article we, uh, we read. But, um, but anyway... So that happened. So, you know, just hilarious to me, the idea of the FBI charging into this museum yeah. and taking these works. Meanwhile, the uh, director of the museum, Aaron DeCroft, uh, was fired, mm. was ousted mm. after the raid, uh, partly because part of the FBI's uh, affidavit has a, um email that he wrote to uh, the uh, expert um, that, uh, you know, authenticated the works, and uh, he threatened her, right? So this expert uh, is an associate professor of art at University of Maryland. Apparently, she was paid $60,000 for her um, opinion, okay, her appraisal opinion, whatever you want to call it. And she had second thoughts after, you know, at at some point. Um, And he said, uh, um, you want want us to put out there that you got 60 grand to write this? And this is an email DeGroff wrote. Okay, then shut up. You took the money. Stop being holier than thou. Do your academic thing and stay in your limited lane. And on the basis of that, he was fired. Oh, God. Well, that's like... And uh, he threatened like to uh, let um, her uh, university know okay. uh, that she had been paid. Six- I mean, $60,000. I mean, that's... Uh, that's money. A lot of money for um, a, an associate professor. Right. Uh, surely. Um, but anyway, also, uh, the uh, Metropolitan Museum's chief executive, Daniel Weiss, uh, will step down. Um uh, in in about a year, June 2023. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting because he kind of took charge um, uh, when the Met was so in uh, so much financial trouble uh, a few years ago, and also the uh, remember the um, director then Thomas Campbell of the Met had to step down because of. Uh, Improprieties, no, etc. Yeah. Um, but but mainly it was the financial stuff. Right. The uh, Met was in a terrible place. Now Weiss had been uh, the head of Haverford and yeah. Lafayette. He knew something. He was an art historian, but right. he knew something about running an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the guys who you know work their way up through curator do not. Right. So it was a good, it was a good fit for him. He did a good job. Uh, he did many good things. Now they have. Uh, and he was um, also made, let's see, he was, um, I guess, uh, president, but then he was um, also also became chief executive, mm-hmm. all right, which kind of um, put him in a higher, at a higher level mm-hmm. than the director, who is, who is um, Max Holine mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. And so the question is, is there any tension between them? Was that not working? Mm-hmm. Has he decided to step down? Both Holine and Weiss say, no, they worked very well together. Um, but, it, you know, the, it remains to be seen whether Holine will be, um, you know, promoted to take back that 
chief executive. Well, as I mentioned Stan. to you, I read that uh, the Met has now raised the admission fee from twenty-five to thirty dollars. Uh, and funny, it was to me it was a funny PR release that went with it. They said, "Well, we haven't raised this. You know, it's been twenty-five for ten years. It's time to raise it." Of course, that's that's totally misleading because it used to be pay what you will. Right. Then it became unless you're a New York City resident, unless you're a New York City resident, you have to pay twenty bucks. No, it was twenty. No, twenty-five. Twenty-five. Yeah. Well, let me put it differently. Okay. They said we haven't raised it since in ten years. In fact, there's no there was no admission charge that existed until two years ago. That admission charge was twenty five, and they just did raise it from yeah. twenty five to thirty. So yeah. it's, it is misleading, and it is higher than other first class museums. But you know, I don't care. They, 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 but in any event, they clearly are in some financial strains. Well, I, I think it's lower for students. Yeah, I'm right? sure it's lower for a lot of people. But it is a bad thing. Yeah, because well. They can easily do it because the Met is so overrun with people, you can hardly see the art. Right. Okay? It does a big business. Well... But having these higher prices just shuts out more and more people. Well, you you know something, what you say, though, is not 100% true. It might be overrun with people who are New York natives who are not paying anything. So the question is whether this is a distant... And New York natives don't pay anything or don't have to. It's a huge international tourist attraction. Well, they did okay? go a few tourists who and said for they're people not all over the country. Because of this. Look, I don't know how big a deal it is. All I'm really saying is they clearly need money. Uh, speaking of someone who doesn't need money, Max Scherzer of the Mets uh, rehabbing, rehabbing from uh, an arm injury, and he's about to start pitching again for the Mets. But the last thing you do after when you're going through a recovery period of six weeks or so is you often take uh, what are really practice turns. You pitch a couple of games in the minor leagues. And sure enough, he was in last week. He was pitching for the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, the minor league Ooh, team. Oh, Rumble Ponies. In uh, Hartford. It was an away game. And uh, so the people in Hartford were thrilled. They were looking, they were going to pay $9 to see minor leaguers. Instead, they're watching Max Scherzer. Yeah. Uh, and um, so there he is. He's playing the Hartford Yard Goats uh, in Hartford. And uh, here's a tradition uh, I did not know about. It turns out that when a major leaguer does this, it's not that rare. It's a a rehab thing. Uh, The tradition is uh, that the big leaguer is passing through by everyone on the team dinner. I was just going to guess that was it. Okay. So I'm saying to myself, uh, and the quote from Scherzer, they're eating well tonight. He's following through. And I'm saying to myself, yeah. You know, I hate the It's easy to sit here and spend somebody else's money. But... Just to think about it for a minute, I said, what's it going to cost him? It's going to cost him $2,500. I'm saying to myself, what does Max Scherzer make? Max Scherzer makes about $100,000 a day. A day. A day. Yeah. Whether or not he pitches? Right. Really? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, he can take the $2,500. You don't know where he took them, do you? No, they don't I'd say. I'd be it. curious. It's in Binghamton. I'll look it up for you. But, you know, he, and he okay. was very good spirited. They asked him what he thought about pitching in Hartford. Quote, cool little pork. Good to check another city off my list. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I just quickly, um, Margaret Keene passed away at 94. She was the painter of sad-eyed waifs, as the New York Times puts it. So when we were growing up, you probably didn't notice. Correct. But uh, it was a ubiquitous image yeah. these pictures of 
you know, little girls with enormous eyes. Yeah. And there had to be, I mean, uh, a million knockoffs. I mean, I feel pretty confident I had at least one paper doll with uh, that kind of uh, yeah. look. Mm. Um, so they were everywhere. They were, you know, just ridiculous. Um, uh, and it, it, in the Times here, it says, found in discount stores of velvet, a velvet El- Elvis paintings and clown pictures right. staring out from souvenir stands. But here's the thing. I mean, she had an interesting story. It must have been interesting because Tim Burton made a movie about her with Amy Adams yeah. in 2014. And uh, the truth is she painted all these paintings, but they were sold under her husband's right. name. This is like her second or third husband. And he had, he was a sec- second husband, I guess. He had been a real estate agent. Oh. And uh, he was just, uh, you know, a um, charmer, a, you know, a con man. She stayed in the basement painting these paintings like crazy. And he went around selling them. And big time, like the big Tonight time. Show and place like that. And, yeah. he, and he claimed... Even when it became controversial, that he did the paintings. Yes, he never backed off that. And uh, people, you know, would ask her, "Well, well why did you let him do right. that?" And she right. said, "At a certain point, it just got out of hand, and it was too late to say that I was doing it." Then later in life, she does like she divorces him and she challenges him to a paint off, right. and uh, to he prove that he's lying. Yeah, but he never one. He doesn't show up to the next one. Was I guess in court, yeah. and he said uh, his arm. T- hurt too much he yeah, couldn't he, had uh, he was pitching he for the be. rumble ponies that week and he wasn't available so, uh yeah. right but i i just bring it up because those images were so iconic yeah. in the 60s and 70s and I, i'm shocked to think that anybody you know would think of them as serious art and i guess uh you know people in the know well, made hard. fun of them yeah they said that she was in the line for some prize, for example. And they tell some story, and, and then a Times critic comes in and says, "This is no, 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 Kish or something. It's awful." Well, there was the um, there was a mural or a painting that was supposed to be at like the entrance to one of the world's fairs. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the New York Times goes nuts. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. that's withdrawn. Yeah. I wish I could find that. Uh, yeah, I, that's the story. I mean, and so uh, there was a strong reaction at the time, but it was popular as you said it was popular so there you go it's yeah, like, just you know, one of those just one of those memories i feel like there's some it's hard i have know. some personal story uh relevant to one of those but i can't i can't really uh yeah it was supposed to be was chosen as the theme for the pavilion of education but withdrawn on the grounds of bad taste and low standards yeah after being pilloried in the times mr Keene is the painter who enjoys international celebration for grinding out formula pictures of wide-eyed children of such appalling sentimentality that his product has become synonymous with the very definition of tasteless Hack work. Okay, so there you go. According to uh, John Canaday. Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard to account for taste. So the, the final story is about uh, a movie that came out called Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey and a Song. And it's the it's a documentary about that song, Hallelujah, which uh, everyone's heard. It Talk about ubiquitous. It's Hallelujah. Well, Hallelujah, some people sing it Hallelujah, but whatever. They can sing it any way they want. My point is we all know the song. 
Okay, hallelujah. Um, I think you're right. My point is this, that uh, it's a very interesting story, and apparently the documentary is sort of interesting, because it was not a popular song from the outset, at least not with respect to his record producer. He had a record producer. It took him seven years to finish the song. He had had a bunch of albums by then. Perhaps he wasn't selling too many albums. But he comes to them with Hallelujah and some other songs for the purpose of uh, putting out a record called Various Positions. And the record company, which is Columbia, said, we're not interested. We don't like the song. We don't like the other songs in the album. We don't think uh, this stuff is worth uh, pressing into a record. And then one of the other songs on the album is Dance Me to the End of Love, which is another incredible Leonard Cohen classic. Uh, and yet these geniuses at Columbia Records say, you know, doesn't doesn't strike us as worth worth putting out. So he, the only way it goes out is that it comes, it's released on a small American label. Uh, and yet it somehow comes, both songs come to the uh, attention of uh, other singers. In the case of Hallelujah, uh, they mentioned a couple people record it, but what really got it going in this I wouldn't have had any idea. It has some connection with the the movie Shrek. And the soundtrack album had a recording of Hallelujah by Rufus Wainwright. And uh, it clicked. And now, you know, a zillion people have recorded it. Uh, and, um, you know, they describe it as a great anthem of religious ecstasy and sexual longing. How's that? Okay, interesting. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, it's a nice write-up of the movie. And and they say, look, it's particularly going to be appealing to Leonard Cohen fans. I like Leonard Cohen. Uh, they say he is throughout a vivid, complicated presence, willy, excuse me, witty, melancholy, well-dressed, and soft-spoken. By the end, he radiates wisdom, gratitude, and the kind of fulfillment whose elusiveness had always been his great subject. Well, that might be fun to see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's it, July 4th. All right, so we got to go out and find some fireworks. I was just going to say, uh, we have to hunt because the big fireworks in this area were July 2nd, uh, with or without the 1812. I think there are fireworks all over. I've been, I'm not sure. And we'll if we out. miss the fireworks, we can always go to Cranberry, New Jersey, where fireworks are traditionally done on July 5th. Well, you know, that may be what we do. All right. Okay, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Appuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See you tomorrow. See you next week. Maybe. Well, I'm available.